Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. We'll get to the recording of this Sunday's message in just a moment, but first I want to ask, are you a listener who does not attend in person on Sundays, but who would be interested in meeting with other St. Paul's listeners in your area for a small group? Right now we have a couple people connected to St. Paul's who live in the New Haven shoreline area who would like to start an in-person small group you know, to meet for fellowship and discussion of the previous week's message. And so if you happen to be from the New Haven shoreline area and you would be interested in that, please email me to let me know. Ryan at stpaulswired.org. That's stpaulswired.org. And if you're not in that area, but you're in another area and you'd be interested in meeting with other listeners there, Email me to let me know what area you're from, and maybe we can put something together. In fact, even if you're not interested in a small group, but you're just a regular listener who doesn't attend in person, we'd love to hear from you just to know that you're out there, because uh, we don't really know how many people listen to this. So if you're willing, we'd love to hear from you. And as always, we'd love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. All right. Good morning, everybody. So last week we finished up our series, Jesus and the Women of Faith, and uh, I'm planning on doing a series on the letter known as 1 John later this summer, but we're kind of in between series right now, and I'm feeling led to do a mini-series on several relationships between brothers in the book of Genesis. Three, three sermons, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, and Joseph and his brothers. So we're starting with Cain and Abel. This is a weird story. How many of you guys feel familiar with this story? You've heard it before, Cain and Abel. It happens very early in the Bible, second generation of humanity. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. So if you want to follow along, I encourage you to turn there in your Bible. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity to look at the scriptures together. Uh, Lord, we want to encounter you through these scriptures. We want to be transformed by them more into the likeness of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to humbly um, receive them this morning. And, uh, Lord, we just invite you to work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Genesis 4. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. 
The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. All right, so a lot in there, isn't there? Cain and Abel are the second generation of humanity described in the Bible, the children of Adam and Eve, and they bring offerings to the Lord. Now, we're not told that God asked them to do this. Maybe we're supposed to assume that he did. Or maybe Cain and Abel just felt compelled to make offerings. Uh, we know that ancient people felt a compulsion to offer offerings to their gods, right? In the hopes that they would provide them with a good harvest or increased fertility or protection from natural disasters and illnesses. So Cain and Abel bring their offerings. And Cain was a farmer. So he brings some of the fruit of his labor, right? Probably some vegetables, grains, fruits. Abel, on the other hand, he keeps livestock. So he brings an offering from his flock. And God looks with favor on Abel's offering, but does not look with favor on Cain's. Why? Does God just like meat more than vegetables? I mean, most of us do feel the same way, right? So. I think that's too simplistic. Of course, God's not literally eating these offerings, right? Some, some interpreters assume that Abel's sacrifice is better because it atones for sin better than Cain's, right? Unless an animal dies, they say, then the cost of sin cannot be adequately represented. And that's a possibility. But notice the text doesn't say that Cain and Abel brought offerings to atone for sin. 
Not all offerings are sin offerings. And not only that, but later in the Bible, when instructions are given to Israel for how to give sin offerings, the poor people who don't have animals to give are told that they can give a sin offering of flour and that God will accept that. God will receive what they are able to offer. And in this story, it seems like Cain offers what he is able to offer. He brings an offering from his labor, and Abel brings an offering from his. And yet Cain's offering is not accepted. God says to him, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? So what is the right thing that Cain is supposed to do? or was supposed to do, right? Pick a different profession? Buy one of Abel's sheep? Maybe? Well, the New Testament gives us a clue. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. By faith, Abel brought a better offering. Notice it doesn't say, by the tasty meat of an animal, Abel brought a better offering. It says, by faith, he brought a better offering. Abel was commended as righteous not so much because of the offering itself, but because of the state of his heart when it was offered. It was an offering made with a heart of faith. Now, what is a heart of faith? Well, a heart of faith is a, uh, a heart of faith is a heart that is characterized by trust in God and by thanks to God. Trust in God and thanks to God. And a heart of trust and thanks is a heart that is not ruled by fear and anger. Trust in God and thanks to God drive out fear and anger. But Cain's offering does not come from a heart of faith, right? God warns him, sin is crouching at your door, Cain. Like an animal about to pounce and eat you. God says, you got to get this under control, Cain. But of course, he doesn't heed that warning. And one day he says to his brother, his own brother, let's go out into the field so he can kill him, which he does. And that terrible act shows how far Cain is from a heart of faith. And clearly he was far from a heart of faith before he brought that offering. You don't go from a heart of faith to murderous rage in one moment. Sin has been crouching at Cain's door for a while, and this, I believe, is why his offering was not accepted. Because as Jesus will later emphasize, God doesn't really desire sacrifice, he desires mercy. Right? That's what he really wants from his people. And the problem with Cain wasn't that he didn't have a sacrifice to offer, the problem was that he didn't have mercy which is clearly shown a little while later. And that's what God really wants, is mercy. 
So what is this story really about? Well, I would summarize its theme with one word, violence. The story of Cain and Abel is the story of the first human violence. It's far from the only human violence in the Bible, but it's the first. So let's ask, what is this story telling us about violence? Well, first, it's saying we have a problem with it. Humanity has a problem with it. Notice how quickly violence enters the human story. Second generation in the Bible. As soon as humans are reproducing, they're killing each other. And Cain is just the beginning. After this, we're given a short genealogy of some of Cain's descendants. And there's only one descendant who we have any dialogue from. He's a man named Lamech, Cain's great-great-great-grandson. And Lamech brags, he says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. It's kind of like saying, I killed a kid. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. In other words, oh, you thought my great-great-grandfather Cain was bad. Well, watch me. Cain would kill you for crossing him. I'll kill you and your whole family. So what Genesis is depicting here is a bad trend in humanity, right? Humanity is getting more violent, more retributive, and it keeps getting worse. By the time we get to the sixth chapter in Genesis, we're told every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time, and that the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And this is what precedes the flood. Right? This is why the flood happens, because of the violence of humanity. So what this story is showing us, and what those opening chapters of the Bible show us, is that violence is the fruit of sin. Violence is the fruit of sin. It is one of humanity's deepest and most intractable problems. Violence. Now, if we're paying attention, we know this already. Right? History is largely the study of wars, right? We mark history by explosions of violence. In this year alone, America has already had 272 mass shootings, killing 351 people and wounding 1,032 others. That's just over the last five months. It's estimated that Americans own 393 million guns. So that means that America has more guns than people. About 120 guns for every 100 people. In 2021, Gallup did a survey of gun owners, and the number one reason they gave for owning a gun was personal protection. 88% of those asked listed that as a reason. Now, regardless of how we might feel personally about, about guns, I think we should all be able to agree that the incredible number of guns in America is a symptom of the problem of violence. Some people get guns because they are like Cain, 
Some people get guns because they want to protect themselves from people who are like Cain. And some people fall into both of those categories. But whatever the case, that enormous quantity of guns is a symptom of this problem that we have with, with violence. Right? The proliferation of nuclear weapons is another example. As nations, we try to build weapons that are capable of extraordinary levels of violence. That is their purpose, right? To threaten extraordinary levels of violence. A level that would have been unimaginable to Cain. And humanity does this both because of our Cain-likeness and because of our fear of those who are like Cain. It's a symptom of our problem. We might think that only a very small percentage of humans are capable of violence, but history teaches us otherwise. In 1994, Rwanda erupted into unfathomable violence. Over a period of about 100 days, an ethnic group known as the Hutus killed over half a million people from the Tutsi ethnic group. Some estimate that that number is actually closer to a million. And it was Hutu civilians murdering Tutsi civilians. Not armies. Civilians. And I don't understand all the factors that led to that. I've tried to do a little bit of reading about it, and I need to do more. But I think it's okay not to know all the details, because I think sometimes we can even see the truth of it a little better when we're distanced from it. We see the insanity of it, the absurdity. Humanity has a problem with violence. Violence is the fruit of sin. And the Bible makes that clear from the beginning. And then the second thing this story shows us about violence is that God hates it. Where is your brother Abel? God asks, as if he doesn't know. It's just like after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, right? God asks a question that he already knows the answer to. Because he's not really asking a question. He's giving an invitation to confession. Where is your brother? But instead of confessing, Cain tries to hide, just like mom and dad did, right? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? But God doesn't let him deny. What have you done? He says. What have you done? You see, the God of Israel is not like the other ancient gods that praised brute strength and survival of the fittest. This is a God who hears the cries of victims of violence and says, listen, don't you hear it? Abel's blood is crying out from the ground. This is a compassionate God. And he's so compassionate that his compassion extends even to Cain, right? He pronounces a curse on Cain, but he also puts some kind of mark on him to protect him. I don't fully understand what that means, but if there's one takeaway from that, it's that God also cares about Cain too. 
even in his grief over Abel. And then the third thing that I see this story telling us about violence is that it turns us into restless wanderers. This is what God says will happen because Cain murdered his brother. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And then that's what, what happens. We're told that Cain goes to the land of Nod. Do you know what Nod means? Wandering. He goes to the land of wandering. Wandering is what we do when we can't settle down. It's what we do when we're looking for a place to rest and we can't find one. Now, we're told that Cain does eventually find a physical place to rest, right? Because what does it say? It says he built a city. Interesting detail, right? He built a city. But that doesn't mean that Cain is at rest in his soul. The city is built in the land of Nod. It's built in the land of wandering. And so I suspect that Cain is restless in his spirit even as he builds this city. Maybe part of the reason he's motivated to build this city is because he's trying to find rest. He's desperate for it. But even as he builds it, he's in the land of wandering in his soul. Those, who are, those of us who have ever been involved in violence usually struggle to find rest. Some are haunted by their consciences. Some live in fear of their crimes being discovered. Some live in fear of retribution from their enemies. Some feel the need to isolate, like they can't be honest or tell anyone who they really are or what they've done, so they keep their distance from everybody, right? And some people experience all of those things. Whatever the case, their violence turns them into restless wanderers, people who cannot be completely at peace. I think we can see this often in service people after they've participated in violent combat. Some return home as restless wanderers. They're never able to feel at home in their own skin, haunted by violence they committed or violence that was done to them, or both. Violence turns us into restless wanderers. Some interpreters have also suggested that this story implies that there is a link between violence and the building of cities. It's an interesting thought. Cain commits violence, and then he goes out and he builds a city. And when you think about it, it does kind of work like that, or at least in the ancient world, right? Because cities were often built on the backs of slaves or conquered people or on the resources that were taken from conquered people, right? It's an interesting thought. That violence not only destroys, but we human beings try to use it to create. It's a terrible way to do things, right? But often it's what happens. Now, if we look at this story in isolation, I don't think it has much hope to offer us says something true about our condition as human beings, but that truth is not reassuring. We are prone to violence. Violence begets increasing levels of violence, and that violence harms both the victims and the perpetrators. It kills victims, and it turns perpetrators into restless wanderers. 
But thank God the story of the Bible doesn't end here, right? This is only the beginning, and the good news is that God has done something about the problem of violence. But he hasn't addressed it in the way that many of us might expect. We tend to expect that God will deal with violence with violence. But the New Testament tells a very different story. God comes to earth in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, a man who refuses to be violent, even though there are many forces that would like him to be. He preaches that we should forgive 77 times rather than avenge 77 times, like Lamech said. He says things like, blessed are the meek and blessed are the peacemakers. He commands us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And then he himself endures the very worst that human violence has to offer. He's beaten, scourged, crucified. Jesus absorbs humanity's violence into himself, in his own body, even to the point of death. But on the third day, he rises again. Which is a sign for us that human violence will not win. It will not. Temporarily, violence may seem victorious, but Jesus' way of peace is the only true path to victory. The book of Hebrews is near the very end of our Bibles, opposite end, but it refers back to this story when it says this, You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. To the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is the word that the blood of Abel spoke? It was a cry that God heard rising from the ground, a cry for justice. A cry for things to be made right. Now that's not a bad word. It's necessary. Necessary word. But the blood of Christ speaks an even better word than that. Because the blood of Christ speaks forgiveness. Even as Jesus was killed, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So the blood of Christ speaks forgiveness for perpetrators. It speaks rest for restless wanderers haunted by their sins. It calls them to come to him and find rest. It calls them to confession and repentance. It creates the possibility for them to exchange their hearts of anger and fear for a heart of faith. But at the same time, the blood of Christ also speaks for victims. The blood, the blood of Christ says, God identifies with you. The blood of Christ says, God is with you in your pain. The blood of Christ says, God has not forgotten you. The blood of Christ says, he stands with you. The blood of Christ says, he will go all the way to the realm of the dead to recover you and to make things right. The blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The cry of the blood of Abel was a cry for things to be made right. The word of the blood of Christ is that they will be.
and in a way that somehow that I still have not totally figured out satisfies both justice and mercy. Now, until that day when violence ceases, we in the church are called to carry the message that the blood of Christ speaks. And we do that by turning from violence, just like Jesus did. We do it by refusing to become like Cain. We also do it by recognizing our Cain-likeness, by recognizing that sin does crouch at our doors. And unlike Cain, repenting of that. And we also do it by standing up for the ables of the world and by calling on the, the Cains to confess their, their evil. But at the same time, like Christ, we offer hope to the Cains of the world, recognizing that there is a little bit of Cain in all of us. And we offer them a way to replace their hearts of fear and anger with a heart of faith by telling them that Christ died for them too. And that if they will confess and repent, he can bring them out of the land of wandering and into that rest of forgiveness. This is how God solves the problem of human violence and calls us to participate in that solution here and now. It's a tough calling. Lord, this morning we lament the violence in your world. And Lord, if there is any way that we are participating in it, help us to see that. Help us to see the way that our, our words or our actions may be harming people who are made in your image. And help us to repent. Lord, help us not to be like Cain. We thank you, Lord, for the blood that you shed, which speaks a better word than Abel. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.